0: hi this is scott thompson welcome to the scott thompson show podcast thanks for listening tell your friends feel free to subscribe coming up on today's show hamilton moves into stage two of the covid19 pandemic recovery we'll talk to a couple of protesters behind the black lives movement in hamilton and more calls for body cams on police is it time it's all coming up on the scott thompson show podcast Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, uh, good news for uh, Hamilton, Halton, and the Niagara region. Pretty much everybody except Toronto, Peel, and Windsor. They have been uh, held at Stage 1. The rest will open up into Stage 2, including Hamilton, uh, coming up this Friday. Here's what the Premier had to say earlier on.
1: This will mean more people going back to work at restaurants, bars, beauty salons, shopping malls, and many other businesses, big and small, in those regions.
0: All right, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid. He is a health policy expert and has been one of our go-to guys here on uh, as we go through 14 weeks of a COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and as always, uh, doctor, great to have you on. Hope you're doing well.
2: Thank you, Scott. Thank you. I can't believe it's been 14 weeks.
0: I know, I, and the only the only way I've kept track is that I've really been writing it down, and I still have I have one set of notes, one page of notes from every single day, and they're still sitting on my desk, uh, desk next to me, and I go back to them uh, for reference often. And the good news is when I go back for reference today, uh, 181 new cases, I believe that is the lowest uh, since way back when in March. Your thoughts of where we are?
2: Yeah, so exactly that. For the second day in a row and the third time in the past four days, there's been now fewer than 200 new cases of COVID-19 in Ontario, uh, which is great. This is the lowest day-over-day increase since last, late March. So uh, this is fantastic news for all of us following this closely and for everybody affected by COVID-19 and or scared of COVID-19, rightly so. So we're on the right track, it's just uh, we're reopening things uh, across the province, except in uh, parts of the GTA given the higher numbers there uh, and that will take some time and patience with those regions that still haven't to be opened is needed but I think we're definitely on the right track.
0: How concerned are you doctor of people that are within still those restricted areas uh, Toronto Peel Windsor going outside their restricted areas I mean some reporters have commented on that obviously the majority of people aren't going to do that but are you concerned about that?
2: That's always been one of our concerns, Scott, about the regional reopening of policies. And what I mean by that is that for a long time, there's been this push to sort of have policy specific to the region so that we're not locking down all parts of the province, but rather only areas that have hotspots of COVID-19. And what we've always said about that is that there's a concern that people from less uh, COVID-19 case uh, regions will go to those areas and bring the, the, the virus there. Uh, the concern is still there. I don't think it's as, as, as uh, simple as we make it sound that people are going to hop in their car and rush to the closest region. We have to remember that m- most of the public transport has actually been reduced. So there is still a difficulty in transport to so people going to one place to another. And I think people do, for the, for the most part, understand that there is still a risk of getting COVID-19 at this point. Uh, we just got to reiterate the messages that public health interventions are still of importance to follow.
0: Uh it seems that uh we 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 sort of uh, uh take this in two week increments almost waiting for the other shoe to drop. I remember uh the Maylong weekend people were wondering if two weeks after that we'd be uh, we'd have an issue. Uh the demonstrations and the marches going on whether that would translate into something. Where we are, how concerned are you of a second wave? I mean, we obviously can't take our foot off the gas here, but uh is it still always wait two weeks, wait two weeks?
2: I will find it exceptionally hard if you spoke to any infectious disease specialist or public health intervention specialist to say to you that we are in the clear. We will never be in the 100% clear until a vaccine or a treatment is in place. So I think that the fact that we were reporting on two week increments and the numbers will continue until that day happens. The difference is that as we progress further uh, with, with strict adherence to public health interventions, reopening and testing a healthcare system, All we're trying to do here is buy ourselves time uh, until that treatment or vaccine is in place. And the good news is that we're getting there. We've fast-tracked those processes for both those things. And uh, it won't be exceptionally long before we actually see developments into those two fronts. But it will take some time, so we will continue reporting on COVID-19 for the foreseeable future.
0: So, obviously, we are seeing some very encouraging numbers now. We are starting to see things open up, obviously. Uh, does the fact that we are doing reasonably well now, whatever that means, does that say something about the second wave or two totally separate things?
2: No, I think it does say something about the second wave. We still expect a second wave regardless. I think that uh, as we open things more up, more, more and more people get out in the community because they feel safer. I mean, myself and my friends and my colleagues are still not 100% feeling safe to go out. So I could speak for myself here, Scott. I'm not rushing out to public events and, and social gatherings. On the contrary, I'm playing it very cautiously so i think many people are still in that boat and the point i'm trying to make here scott is that as people like myself and others who are still playing it safe are taking their slow sweet time to get out there once we do all of us get out in the community that's when we might see a second wave so the answer is we don't know it all depends on human behavior and how fast people get out there
3: um,
0: the fact that some areas, uh, are still considered hotspots, uh, like Toronto, Peel and Windsor, is that just simply a density issue? Is that, I mean, obviously Windsor, it could be a border issue, but is it just the, the large amount of people that, that are, that live in those areas?
2: It's also a matter of numbers, right? Like those areas have, have reported higher number of COVID-19 cases than we hoped for. It's also about who is getting affected in those areas. Is it our senior citizens, or homeless population? Uh, can we actually put in place measures in, uh, to, to reduce those numbers over time? So when you see this happening where we're not opening everything, it's because those hotspots, as we would like to call them, still have issues that need to be resolved.
0: What about uh, the younger generation last week? We haven't heard so much about this this week, although it's still early, obviously. But there were, even in Hamilton, we saw over 10 days, I think about a 43% per, uh, increase, and that was in those uh, under 20. Ha- has that calmed down, or are we still seeing uh, continuing to see a spike in young numbers?
2: The current breakdown of Ontario cases by number is that 1,402 people are uh, under 19, 19 and under affected by COVID-19. Uh, and the total number of uh, male and females, so the males was 14,000, the females was 17,000. One thousand, more than 1,000 people under 19 affected by COVID-19 is a number we need to be worried about. Hence why we're reporting it. There's been a massive investment recently about data. And by data, I mean those numbers that tell us about race, age, gender, uh, why they're important, because they will help us target our interventions to the subpopulation. You and I have spoken last week about Hamilton and the issue with younger adults uh, not really following uh, public health interventions. So currently we're looking at what possibly can the province do to uh, deliver that message more clearly to that subpopulation.
0: Uh, okay, so here we see Hamilton and Halton and Niagara. Well, everybody except those three regions, Toronto Peel and, and uh, Windsor, uh, moving into stage two? What advice do you have? Are we still seeing the mask wearing that we did maybe a week or two ago?
2: I was speaking to one of your producers earlier this morning about the masks, and we were just saying how this weekend I had to leave my house to go to the pharmacy, and I noticed the majority of people here in Toronto and in Hamilton, for example, are not really wearing the masks. I mean, we see it more often, but not the majority. So I wonder when that time will come, when it becomes the norm that everybody's wearing masks. I will say from a, from a consumer, you know, citizen point of view that I noticed that the pharmacies I went to were handing out face masks and were practicing public health intervention. So I will want to give props to businesses who are handing out hand sanitizers and face masks when people come in. The real question, Scott, is how long will that happen? How sustainable is that model? How can businesses afford to continue providing face masks and hand sanitizer at the door? Time will only tell with that one. So
0: these are procedures that we're going to have to continue with right through the summer, aren't there, Ahmad?
2: For sure. And we will have to continue that beyond the summer. I think we're going to see that as the flu season begins again in the winter with the COVID-19 pandemic, we're going to continue to see those measures. And that's really the questions that we're all asking the private sector and public now. is how sustainable are the measures of providing hand sanitizers and face masks at the door? Or is now we're going to see a bigger push for people to carry their own material? We know that the TTC here in Toronto is mandating now face masks. Uh, where we've heard reports that they're going to try to provide as much as they can. I'm not sure it's a very sustainable model in terms of business for them to continue providing free masks to everybody when they walk in. I think that's a temporary thing. And I could see businesses and public sectors moving into a model where they just mandate you to have a mask. Many people are carrying them out of precaution. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Please make sure you have a face mask with you, even if you're not wearing it, because there are some businesses that will not allow you entrance without it.
0: Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert. Ahmad, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
2: to you, Scott. Thank you
0: very much. Let's bring in Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, medical officer of health for the city of Hamilton. She is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well.
4: I am, Scott. Hope you're doing well, too.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, Your thoughts that as of this Friday, we move into stage two. Are we ready?
4: Yeah, it's time. It's time to move into stage two. We've seen some real progress. I mean, the, the things that people have done here in order to control this virus, the efforts by all Hamiltonians and all across Ontario to control this virus, to follow public health guidance, they've just been tremendous. And we see that with the decreasing rates of of cases that we have. We're down to having at most four to five cases per day over the last week to 10 days. That's down from about 10 to 15 for the week or so before that. So really continuing to see substantial declines in the number of cases and of course we have no outbreaks which is fantastic news for the last week and so it really is time to get back. We know that health is so is determined by so much more than just COVID-19 but by our economy, our jobs, all of those sorts of things, our mental health with connection and so our social circles are good news and so it's time to move forward but still remember we're dealing in a world with COVID-19 and, and the measures we need to take.
0: Last week in the city, we were talking about uh, numbers, specifically those 20 and under, and we had seen a spike in those, and that was that was obviously concerning. Your thoughts on that?
4: Yeah, it was concerning. You know, we, we did see that increase. It lasted for, you know, a good couple of weeks in terms of uh, the cases amongst that age group. It's now, the numbers are now down, um, and we saw several reasons behind it. You know, there were um, definitely that age group, they tend to live together with roommates, have larger number of people in the house, and uh, we thought in spreading amongst the houses, and this is a virus that loves to spread in situations where people are living closely together, that's where it spreads the most. Um, but also that in commuting and carpooling, um, doing so- some social activities and trying to maintain physical distance, but you know, not being able to follow all of the, the control measures that are out there, and so the the hand washing, the uh, use of masks, what we call situational masking. I know your previous caller was just talking about that, um, and, and making sure we're staying at home if we're sick. Those are all important pieces of guidance that we need to follow. And it is a it's um, you know I would say it's it's a warning for all of us that if we let our guard down. Um, we could end up with that spread increasing, and so as we go forward with this, we do need to be very mindful of measures and and make sure we can keep moving forward.
0: And again, as we do uh, as we do come down the backside of this curve and things start opening up, people do get a lot more optimistic. You can certainly see more people out and about. The roads are starting to uh, get busy again. But how imperative is it that we keep these precautions? We keep selling the hand washing, keep selling the masks. If you can't keep the two meter distance,
4: it is absolutely imper- imperative. We've seen in situations in other countries where we, they've had increases in. When they've gone too quickly, Um, for example, in South Korea, they opened up the nightclubs. And that's a situation where you've got lots of people end up close together. They're raising their voices to sing or to talk over music. And those are the kinds of circumstances where you get increased spread. So we need to pay attention to all those things that can help keep the risk low. It's summertime, which is fabulous, because then we can be outside. There's greater ventilation. The sunlight does kill the virus. Um, you know, but continuing to do the, the physical distancing, maintaining to our social circles so that we can let down our guard with a few close people, um, staying home if you're sick, all those things will continue to be critical. And it has to be a new way that we live rather than thinking that we're going to get past this to something else. It really does need to stay with us, um, really become part of what we do every day.
0: Are we really going to learn anything about a second wave, Doctor, until we're actually in it? I mean, can we, you know, I was mentioning with our last guest, we're doing so well now, does that mean the second wave will be lighter? But we really don't know what the fall will bring, do we?
4: No, we don't know. And we continue to learn from other countries and their experience, and some of them have had great experience. You look at New Zealand and what they've managed to do. Um, What we see in in South Korea, what we see in other parts of the world. And and we're trying to emulate that. You know, a lot of the work the provincial government has done in developing apps that can help with contact tracing. They, You know, we're working very hard at getting uh, cases contacted within 24 hours as well as their contacts. We really, you know, want to see people getting tested within 24 hours of onset of symptoms. So there is so much that's going on as part of the spread that we really, again, want to prevent a second wave and we'll continue to learn from others, but we do wonder as influenza comes into play, what will that mean for us? Um, you know, as people either, we can't tell influenza from coronavirus at the beginning and then, but the measures are very simple are very similar, I should say. But then also, is there anything that would happen if we have both of those things going on together? So we'll continue to learn and watch and, and um, in many ways, we'll know uh, when we get there.
0: Okay, so now Hamilton entering stage two as of this Friday. Um, Is it just common sense to expect a spike in a couple of weeks? There's always that 14-day window there.
4: Well, there is, uh, of course, that 14-day window. And as the the minister has pointed out in the past, as a province, we have seen some of those spikes. Uh, We've been fortunate here in Hamilton not to really see spikes that relate to specific events. It has, you know, as we saw with this, one amongst the uh, the 20 year olds there's been some that seem to be due to letting down of the guard or that sort of thing um but really i'm quite optimistic you know we've been in training for this for the last 3 or 4 months we are able to go out and do things outside and do things in safer ways and and i'm just so pleased with how the province has responded as a whole our hamiltonians in particular to this that Um, Just want them to keep being mindful of it, keep our businesses being mindful of it as as we go forward. And uh, I'm really hoping we don't see a spike.
0: All right. So Hamilton heading into the second stage as of this Friday. What advice do you have for Hamiltonians at this time? Because, again, we're into week number 14 of this uh from a physical health standpoint we seem uh to to be uh to be surviving this what about the mental health aspect of this as we get towards the bottom of the curve
4: well the mental health aspect is is absolutely crucial we aren't as humans meant to be physically distanced from those that we love we aren't meant to be you know inside all the time and not seeing other people and so that's why going forward Being able to carry out some activities and get outside is very important to be physically active. is huge for our mental health as well. But now being able to go forward with our social circles and start to get back to that human contact with a small group of people. And so I think that's the piece is realizing that we need to go forward incrementally. We aren't going forward and just letting down the guard, but rather how can we add some things as we go that will really help us, help us feel healthier, help us connect to those that we're closest to. But let's take it a step at a time and uh, and uh, make sure that we stay safe as we go forward.
0: And again, this is going to continue at least until, well, through the summer into the fall, isn't it?
4: You know, the timeline we've been talking about is generally a sort of an 18 to 24-month timeline, looking at when we might expect a vaccine or a, another treatment to be developed for it. So we're generally planning over... That kind of time frame and knowing that as we come back indoors, um, in the winter, as we see other viruses, uh, come back as they do cyclically, that we may have a second wave related to those things. And so that's what we want to watch for, um, and make sure that we're, we're thoughtful about those monitoring for them. But regardless of, of time, just continuing to move forward, respect those, those physical distancing measures, respect the things that have kept us safe so far.
0: Dr. Elizabeth Richardson has been with us, medical officer of health for the city of Hamilton. Uh, Doctor, just pass along to any of those that you see that are working so hard, uh, whether it's in your office or right down to the personal uh, support worker. Thank you so much from everybody in the city for working so hard to try to keep us safe. We appreciate that.
4: Absolutely. Thanks, Scott.
0: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. If we have to keep asking if there's systematic uh, violence or systematic racism in society, doesn't that mean that there is? I mean, think about that. If we have to keep asking over and over and over, our, uh, you know, how many times have we been asking this question since the, uh, the death of George Floyd? If you have to keep asking if it's raining, chances are it probably is. Otherwise, you'd be out in the sunshine enjoying yourself. Uh, it it just seems to be a a bizarre discussion that we have over and over and over again. Is it different this time? Uh, This weekend, another Black Lives Matter protest started at Dundurn, ended at City Hall downtown. Jesse Kelly, one of the speakers at the event. Jesse Kelly is a local advocate, grandson of Ellison Kelly, Hamilton Cat Hall of Famer, and is a local influencer in the jail and school systems in Hamilton. Jesse is with us now. Jesse, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well.
5: Doing very well, Scott. Thanks for
0: having me on. I appreciate it. All right. First of all, talk about this weekend. How did things go? In your mind, Uh, was this a success?
5: uh, Yeah, it was uh, very successful, um, very peaceful. um, And that is something I think I'm most proud of. Um, The rallies, the protests, um, the ones that I've been a part of, they've been very peaceful, um, very loud. We are angry, but we are peaceful at the same time. So that was definitely a success. And I actually started um, at the one at Gore Park and marched with, uh, with my brothers and sisters to City Hall and met up with Dundurn. There was actually two protests yesterday, so um, or over the weekend, I should say, in Hamilton. So, Jesse, is it different this time? Um, yeah, it is. I see... I see more change in the last three weeks than I have in the last 10 years, being um, a minority of black adult in this country, in this world. Um, I think this time, not only are we united, we're united for good. Nothing um, is going to divide us this time around. Um, Nothing is going to break us this time around. We're strong, um, we're united, we're together now and forever now i think
0: so why why do you think this is different you know i remember when this first happened and, and and people were saying it's different it's different and i remember watching you know coverage of of in the u.s of of mass shootings and the same thing it's different this time it's yeah. different this time and the same thing with the killing of of black men so what yeah. what's different this time what what do you think is going to change it why do you think this is resonating with us differently
5: I think, um, honestly, I think really there's, there's been so many black men and women, um, Native men and women, um, that have been killed, um, persecuted, oppressed um, because of how they look. I think what resonated with everyone was George Floyd. I think that was what is bringing us together and what has united us more than anything, not to take anything away from anyone else, but I just think you can't dispute that video. And Scott, I'll be honest with you, I was able to watch the other videos of police brutality. I wanted to watch that video um, on a Friday morning. I heard him say, I can't breathe once and I broke down and I just shut it off. I can't watch that one. I know what the outcome is. And like I said, there is no disputing that. Whether you're, you're black, you're white, Hispanic, Latino, Asian, man, woman, gay, trans, that was murder. Everyone saw that. So, I mean, and that's the biggest difference. Um, the white community is now on our side. They're now on the side of minorities. And that is the biggest change that I see. Um, that is why we're going to get this done. We won't, we won't, we won't give up. We're going to get this done. Uh,
0: I agree with you 100%. It was that eight minutes and 46 seconds that, uh, that changed everything. Um, who is marching with you this time? Is it different there?
5: Um, yeah, it is. I mean, one thing I am proud of about the, the Black Lives Matter movement is it is truly for everyone. All lives matter to people like me, to people like you, Scott, but all lives don't matter to everyone. And that's exactly why we don't say all lives matter. That's exactly why we say black lives matter. Black lives do matter. And what black lives matter stands for is, um, it is for everyone. And I think the white community has realized that. And that's the biggest change I see, um, White men, white women, white kids, they're now standing with us. They're protecting us. They're for us now. They're willing to change and invent themselves. Um, so I see a lot more people like that marching with us. I see a lot of young, young youth, young kids. Um, it's crazy how we've talked about the millennial generation the last 10 years because I saw a lot of millennials over this weekend loud and proud. Um, and they're willing, we're all willing to do the right thing for each other right now. And that's the biggest change. Ego set aside. Um, selfishness is set aside. And selflessness has come to the forefront of our community right now, our society, our world. And it's global. It's really global. That's another change. George Floyd, it's global. We're all marching together as one. Um, and, you know, we've got great leaders in our community um, Amani Williams, Nia Williams—they're the ones that are. We'll be on next, by the way. Oh, right on. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. And uh, you know, we got uh, Michael Saint John at Four Waves International. He's the one that's been organizing the uh, the Gore, Gore Park protests. And I'm a leader in this community, but these are my leaders. These are the people who I follow. Um, people like Dylan Ray Wolf and uh, Nathan Moore, who also showed up. And that's another thing I'm so proud of: the black community is willing to let other people speak for their causes right now. Um, we are. That's united. a fascinating. That's a
0: fasc- That's a fascinating statement, Jesse. Um, uh, as a white middle-aged guy, um, uh, I'm coming to terms with why I'm feeling differently after George Floyd than I did before. Uh, I, I don't consider myself a racist person in any means, but obviously I didn't see what was going on. And I'm trying to explain my ignorance to myself right now and why it took us all watching that video uh, exactly. to, to finally change. And, and I think what I've learned is, you know, as a guy my age, I'm i'm of the thinking that you know i you know i'm first generation canadian my my mother came here uh you know at a young age and started out working in a factory and gave us all the opportunity and my thought always was well everybody's got that opportunity and they do to an extent but what happens once they're as qualified as i am and we both go to the door and knock on it that's where the injustice is that's where the white privilege is and uh I wish I could capsulize it in such a way to make others in my community uh, see this. But um, to me, this has really made a difference. Uh, why is it important for white people to speak up?
5: I think it's very important um, for white people to speak up. First of all, I'm, I, I identify as a, a black person but I identify as Jesse Kelly first and my mother's white. And I am so proud of that. Um, she raised a strong black man. She was a big part of that. She was the one who brought me to the black side of my family for Christmases, dinners, birthdays, etc. They call her auntie. Um, but uh, I mean, to be, to, be, to be white and privileged and to be able to speak, it's, like I said, you're the reason why, God, this is going to get done at the end of the day we didn't have a white community on our side and now not only they're on the black side they're on the side for all minorities i want to get rid of all derogatory terms i want to get rid of all systemic racism and it is systemic because you know my first instance with racism it wasn't at home it wasn't from family it was at school at a very young age and to say that i've had thousands of those instances would be an understatement because it's been my life for 28 years and it is for every minority every person of color every black person so it is important for you know and that is the biggest change i see or one of them, anyways, is white ignorance is also going out the window white ego is also going out the window and i'm very very appreciative of those things
0: why do you find society, well, and, and maybe this is true, I'm, I'm sure it is changing. I mean, you're, you're talking about that now. But it seemed after the death of George Floyd, everyone was asking, is there systemic racism in society? Why do we have to keep asking that? And the fact that we do, doesn't that say that there is?
5: Yeah, and you know what? It, it, is, it is systemic racism, and it's not necessarily words, but it is, it is action, and it is ignorance it is the fact that we have to ask for, um, our curriculum and our education system to be changed. We want to be educated about native culture. We want to be educated about, um, black culture, you know, I mean, to, to ignore it, I think is just, is, is the wrong, wrong thing to do. Um, it's, it's not, it's, it's not addressing a problem. And, um, like you said, if we have to keep asking the question, that is evidence in, it, in itself that it, that it is systemic. Um, and like I said, it's not just words, it's action or inaction. That's what we're talking about. That's what we want uh, rectified and fixed.
0: What do you say, we've only got a few seconds left, what do you say to those that are having a problem understanding this, this movement?
5: Um. All I can really say is just, just try to understand us. It comes from a place of love. And Black Lives Matter, that movement, I'm proud to be a part of. And it stands for all lives. And we want to get to the place where we can say all lives matter. Right now, all lives don't matter to everybody. That's why I'll never say that till, till, till this happens. And we will get this done. We will.
0: Jesse Kelly has been with us, local advocate, grandson of Allison Kelly, Hamilton Cat Hall of Famer, a local influencer in the jail and school systems within the city. Uh, Jesse, thanks so much for the time. Thanks for the understanding. Keep moving forward, and uh, any way we can
5: help spread the word, let us know. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for using your platform. I appreciate it so much.
0: Well, let's continue with this discussion on uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, um demonstration that was over the uh, course of the weekend in various places uh around the world including hamilton let's bring in amani and naya williams who are part of this uh amani and naya thank you so much for taking the time much appreciated hope you're doing well
6: thank you thank, Hello. You, so much for thank you so much
0: and i'll let you guys figure out which one wants to answer which question but your thoughts on how the weekend went is it did it feel different this time
6: um honestly it felt amazing Um, I did get the same energy from the other rallies, but the difference I thought was the education and people stepped away and personally told me that, you know, thank you so much. I finally understand why it's so important to be out here and use our voices and how we can genuinely be an ally. Um, So that was the main difference, I believe, for our rally that we definitely focused on educating everyone and and making them know um, exactly how we're feeling in the Black community.
0: I just had Jesse Kelly on and asked him the same question. Why is it different this time? What? Why do you think people are viewing this differently now?
6: Yeah, um, Naya, do you want to answer that one? Uh, you can go ahead, Ronnie. Okay. Um, so, why I think they're 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 viewing it differently is because, at least in my own opinion, and I know Naya feels the same. Um, when we went to two different protests in um, Ontario. Um, The energy was there. The voices um, were a little bit missing. I don't think people understood that um, walking down the street silently um, doesn't really make the impact that such a movement needs. Um, So we definitely made it very clear that everybody there needs to use their voices. Um, We invested in uh, megaphones to make sure that, you know, even if you weren't there, you're hearing us. Um, we had an amazing team behind us that helped us out to rent two big speakers and a microphone. So everybody that spoke was heard. That was our main goal. Um, and also, when we were marching in the last ones, um, we, we, like, I would turn to my sides and be like, do you guys know, like, any other victims of police brutality other than George Floyd? Um, and then the common um, denominator was that many people didn't really know that it didn't start with George Floyd at all. Um, you know, us as a community, mm-hmm. been, um, getting in this, like been, um, wondering it, you know, when something's going to change for many, many years now. So, um, it was George that, you know, set the fire in us, but the fire has been burning for many years. And I feel like our rally definitely, um, let people know that.
0: Is it that video that eight minutes and 46 seconds that changed everything?
6: Um, Yes, for sure. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, me personally, I can't bring myself to watch it. Not even a second of it, but yeah. um, it's it's definitely not anything new in our community. Um, it's unfortunate that it had to be taped in order for us to, you know, step up. But the fire is burning, and it's definitely not going to be put out anytime soon. Yeah, I definitely feel like um, now it's more um, advertised. Like you can see with your own eyes on um, on social media platforms and stuff like that. Whereas like back in the day, it's it's hard to get the message out. It's hard for people to see what's actually happening, you know? So once you watch a video like that, if you actually see what's going on, you would realize like, no, this isn't right, you know? So that's another difference.
0: What? How important is it that other communities speak up, especially the white community?
6: It is very important because at this point, Um, we have to realize that just being anti-racist isn't enough if you're silent. You need to be actively anti-racist. If anybody is saying anything that's inappropriate, if anybody's saying anything that's racist um, or judgmental or discriminatory in any way, they need to be brought to light and they need to be told that what they're doing is wrong because this has just been happening for way too long. And the silence is what's making it continue to happen. So now our voices, both from our community and others that see that this is wrong, need to be heard.
0: What, what do you want the white community to take away from this? What is your message to them, some who may be confused or or, or still not understanding the Black Lives Matter movement?
6: Yeah, Um. so what I want them to understand is that, you know, I, I do hear people saying all lives matter, but, you know, if you were there listening to the many, many stories of those that were taken from us with no justice at all, then you can see that clearly, you know, our life doesn't matter to a lot of people so you as the white community can help out by signing petitions you know by donating to um black organizations you know by by actively using your voice um you know putting pressure on certain policies um standing up when things aren't right because like i said it's not enough to just be anti-racist silently because then we can't dif- like we can't tell the difference between if you are racist or you're not you know if you're, you're anti-racist you have to use your voice and you have to use your actions in order to help out our community
0: Amani and Naya Williams have been with us, uh, two sisters, uh, organizing uh, a part of the protest this weekend that uh, we're going on in Hamilton and around the world, for that matter. Amani and Naya, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. Uh, and, and again, good luck moving forward on this. And if there's any way we can help you moving forward, please uh, ask. Definitely. Thank you so
6: much Thanks for having me. us. And Amani, just the sorry. first, but not the last.
0: There you yeah. go. Amani <laughs> and Naya Williams, uh, will have them back. And uh, two sisters that are trying to keep the movement alive. And uh, the death of uh, George Floyd uh, not to be in vain. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Alright, lots of chatter in regard to body cams, especially in the wake of what has happened in the death of George Floyd. Let's bring in David Fraser, lawyer uh, with McInnes Cooper in Nova Scotia, leading internet technology and privacy lawyer, and with us now. David, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well.
3: I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you?
7: Hi, David Fraser. This is uh, Will Erskine, technical producer with the show, and I think Hi. we just had a bit of a technical uh, blip with the Scott. Uh, hmm. So... Oh, he might be coming back here in a second. So the main question that we brought you on here, if you don't mind me jumping into it, is uh, what happens with the 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 data that is collected? I think that's a primary concern. What happens to the data that is collected uh, when uh, police are wearing body cams? where Where does that actually go? And even if it's recorded, can that does that become publicly available at any point?
3: Yeah, so at least by default and and if you're starting with a clean slate, you can of course design a system that does does otherwise. Uh, But the default on most of these systems is they they go into a system that's kind of managed by a service provider. Um, So the company that that sells and markets and distributes the the body camps, some of them have a back end servers where all that information goes. In other cases, it goes more directly to the police agency. But by default, they would be records that are in the custody or control of the police agency um, and would become public records, not public in the sense that they are just kind of available to the public willy nilly. But public records, like any other police record, uh, where so individuals would have a right of access to their own information. Defense lawyers, if there's relevant evidence related to an investigation, would have a right of access to that. Um, Journalists might have a right of access to a significant amount. We've certainly seen in the United States uh, police agencies in the U.S. that are very proactive about disclosing body cam footage by virtue of very broad and open uh, public access laws that, uh, that allow these things, to be, uh, these things to be made available. I would expect that, that Canadian police agencies are generally much more restrictive. And so uh, it would be less likely to see kind of body cam footage coming out quickly after an incident that's being investigated or that, uh, or that uh, reporters are inquiring into. But certainly they, they become a record uh, of, the, of the law enforcement agency
7: eventually so if um if there is a recording the, the data that's being collected, the main thing I've heard that's a concern about body cams is that even though they record a certain amount, even though they uh, may come to trial eventually or even come into the hands of journalists, they're they're still only recording a certain uh, perspective. And so w- would they actually have, uh, in your opinion, a, a strong impact on a, on a case, on an investigation? Or does it ultimately uh, come down to there being too much wiggle room as far as the argument surrounding whatever the recorded data is? Uh, do, does it actually uh, make a, a substantial impact?
3: Well, my own, my own view on that would be that a recording is better than no recording. Uh, and in fact, a, a properly positioned body cam actually should be giving you the perspective, the same point of view that the law enforcement officer has. And so how useful or relevant that is, is going to depend upon what you're investigating. So we saw the incident in, in Toronto where the individual on the streetcar was, uh, was shot by police. Uh, and you really wanted to know in order to fully appreciate whether or not that was a legitimate action by the police to understand what did that officer see at that time. And that would have been the best perspective to do it. There'd be other circumstances where uh, there's a question about whether or not somebody has been truthful uh in a statement to the police and certainly the police officer receiving that statement that statement would be captured on that on that camera and you'd have a a, a more credible uh perspective on what was said and also kind of facial expression and all that compared to the officer's notes and so while <laughs> the, we're not yet at the time where body cams are kind of 360 degree kind of virtual reality immersive experiences uh, in my in my view, uh, having a recording is better than not having a recording.
7: Uh, so, if there is a, a another firm, uh, a third party, they're the ones who are collecting the data. Would they be connected with SIU in the first place? Anyone who's going through the data, and for for that matter, uh, how do they manage the? Um, surveillance aspect of it like what what uh what data becomes not available to police because it's just uh, random throughout the day but could count as uh as uh unwarranted surveillance
3: well yeah and and so certainly kind of any third party that's providing the service on behalf of the police kind of their their obligations would be set out uh, in the agreement related to the service and also according to according to law and in just about every circumstance that i'm that i'm aware of the uh, they have to follow the instructions of the of the police agency. Even though they're a service provider, the records really are, for all intents and purposes, in the custody or control of the of the police agency. And so, in the same way that the SIU would have access to records related to any matters that they're investigating, they should have access to, to that. And obviously, the the contract should make that clear. But I've certainly I've seen other discussions and heard other discussions related to what are other measures that you want to put in place in order to prevent this from being turning a police officer into like a roving surveillance camera. Uh, And the former information privacy commissioner of Ontario, Anne Kabukian, has been tweeting about this, this subject. And one of the things that she suggests, which I think is really worth looking into, would be a system by which all the video captured is encrypted. And so nobody has access to it unless there's a compelling reason to decrypt it. So you don't have a situation where just massive amounts of raw video are just going into... Uh, a, a massive server system so that it could be kind of queried later or where some other sort of mischief can take place. Make sure that that it's only available when there's a legitimate law enforcement need or a legitimate police investig- or police discipline need in order to release it. And, you know, one of the advantages that, that we have, if we're looking at a system where we don't have a legacy body cam system, is that one can design a system that fits the purposes that we as a society are, are looking for uh, and obviously, I think all of these factors are important parts of the of the new conversation uh, that we're having right now about uh, whether or not body cams are, are a solution to a problem, whether or not the economics make sense. Uh, certainly, some of the counter arguments relate to the cost of it. And I've heard some sensible people say, well, take the cost of body cams and put them into mental health services, and you're going to reduce the number of interactions, uh, negative interactions that... that people in distress are going to have with with the police uh all part of the larger kind of defund the police or or reallocate resources conversation that's taking place right now
7: yeah david thank you very much for this uh david fraser lawyer with mckines cooper and nova scotia leading internet technology and privacy lawyers uh very fascinating especially what you're saying about uh encrypted uh uh recordings as they go uh well thank you very much for being with us today we'll have you back sometime you'll get to hang out with scott thompson and thank you for uh for enlightening us
3: My pleasure. Anytime. You take care.
7: You take care as well. Uh, That was David Fraser, lawyer with McCain's Cooper in Nova Scotia. Now we return to your lovely host, Scott Thompson. I've been technical producer Will Erskine.
0: Earning his pay today. (laughs) When the internet goes down, uh, Will's in. Good work there, Will. Uh, Hopefully we've got things uh, back on track now. Uh, Talking about body cams, let's bring in Kevin Bryan, Professor Seneca College. He's a retired police officer. uh, In is with us now. Kevin, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well i
1: am scott thanks very much
0: so lots of talk uh for obvious reasons about body cams right now is it time how do we has this discussion changed
1: i i think it's time if we can afford them let's get them i i, I don't think there's a lot of opposition on the policing side i think uh uh you know from a uh from a cost side that's something that uh, we're gonna have to come up with the money for but uh you know with the uh with the amount of scrutiny and uh you know, the accountability and stuff we want held, these officers held to, I think uh, it's time for body cams.
0: Uh, you talked about the cost, which has always been a massive issue, uh, storing the data, all that sort of thing, whether it's a third party that's involved in that. Uh, we're also hearing chatter of defunding the police. How do you balance defunding the police and spending the kind of money that's needed for, uh, to do this properly?
1: I, I guess there's there, there's not a I, I don't think you can remedy those. I think if you want the accountability, um, I'm not a I'm not a defund the police supporter. Um, I believe if you want to change the way some money spent and such, uh, you know that that can always be looked at. But I but I also believe it has been, you know, it, it has been already. Uh, you know, every, every year they try to, you know, limit the budget of the police. It's it's the biggest expense going, and uh, you know they they try and try and they, they do their best and come up with. You know, so, some measures, but, uh, you know, the um, do they really cut the budget at all? It never seems they do. So uh, I don't know if defunding the police is going to help. And, How can, and, and, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say that uh, scaling this with uh, wanting body cameras on, on all officers, you know, you're going to have to spend the money for that. But I think it's money well spent
0: um you know are we asking the police to do too much because
1: the,
0: the, I, i'm guessing some of the same groups that are saying to fund the police are saying they also need better mental, mental health training they need more uh training with hate to do with hate crimes cyber security terrorism whatever are we putting too much on the shoulders of our police
1: uh you know what the police uh, you know the police have uh many many tools in their kit with with regards to training and, and and getting you know really what you're dealing with is an issue when you get there you're dealing with something and often it's a mental health issue many many of our interactions that go bad with police and the public uh you know are are, are surrounded mental health issues you know so um police are trained with regards to trying to de-escalate but again once you get to a scene once you get to an incident you know Number one, very often you don't know you're dealing with a mental health issue until you're actually on scene, so you don't have time to dispatch other units and such. Um, and, and another time, and say it's a dangerous situation. You don't want to send a mental health worker into a situation where he can't defend himself. They they also need the force that is required to uh, deal with the threat if something uh, goes awry, and, and often it does. Um, so uh, for asking the police to do too much... I think we expect too much of them sometimes. We expect them to go to a situation, disarm somebody, or deal with that mental health person, and not use any force at all. Um, and any time there is any force used, you know, it, it it can look ugly, you know. And if you take if you take that shooting in Atlanta, okay, if if the officers would have been more aggressive with handcuffing them originally when they were trying to handcuff mm. that individual, mm. yeah. if they had a really Took a grip on that guy and forced his arms behind the back and handcuffed him, you know, and with a real secure grip on him, he would have been. Aggressive. Then we would have looked at him and said, "Look how aggressive the police are being yeah. with these individuals." You know, yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to win one way or the other.
0: Kevin Bryan's been with us, professor Seneca College, and a retired police officer. Thank you, Kevin. He says it is time for cameras.